Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about 100 Ways. I'm not a big believer in the New Year's resolution idea. It's not that you won't see me post things online from time to time that reflect a, a sense of resolve or a decision that's uh, key and different. I just don't necessarily put too much stock in them coming at a particular time of year. So I've intentionally timed this particular inappropriate conversations to come after the very beginning of 2017. It's not that I won't look at uh, the time that I'm talking through, the New Year's weekend, and speak specifically about 2016 versus 2017, but in truth, past inappropriate conversations, uh, 61, the impermanence of time, comes to mind, uh, reveal my driving worldview, my driving Christian worldview, that there really isn't such a thing as time, that some of this is a social construct we built a lot of assumptions around and whether or not um, December 31st and January 1st have any meaning from a universal perspective is highly doubtful. So from my perspective, if the time comes to take the inspiration to take stock of things, reevaluate and choose a new course or resolve to continue in a course, but to do so more aggressively or more consistently, uh, I don't know that that has to happen at the end of December or at the beginning of January in any given year. And I want to talk a little bit, under the auspices of 100 Ways, about the last time I really very, very seriously took stock in kind of answering the question of, who am I? Are there a 100 affirmative things I could say about myself? And I did so as part of a work exercise. But before I get into that and some of the background behind it, let me just do a little bit of house cleaning. It seems to me that I don't always do a consistent job of covering everything and all the different ways that people might encounter or interact with me through either inappropriate conversations, which is this podcast, or Walk the Earth. All the podcasts that I record can be found at www.inappropriateconversations.org. From an iTunes perspective, I am there. Both Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth share the same RSS feed, so they can be found at the same place in pretty much any podcatcher. But most podcatchers only have maybe the last 20 episodes available. The way to get and see everything is through the website at inappropriateconversations.org. There is another way of sampling some of everything, and that is through SoundCloud. I am IC underscore Greg, and when I go through contact information, we're going to hear that a lot. Uh, on SoundCloud, uh, looking for IC underscore Greg, what you'll find is selections, excerpts, and clips from all the oldest inappropriate conversations shows working my way forward in time, and I'm getting very close to the point in time where that's going to work my way forward into the point of time where Walk the Earth episodes are appearing. I need to decide what to do. Do I want to excerpt the Walk the Earths? Do I want to simply play the question as a teaser? Haven't decided how to handle Walk the Earth on SoundCloud yet. I'm also on Stitcher. Uh, Stitcher, like iTunes, is only going to have the past, say, dozen or two dozen episodes. But Stitcher is an interesting and a good way. In many, in many circumstances, I find it a good way to listen to podcasts on the go. There's a couple of podcasts I listen to, in fact, that can only be found on Stitcher. Uh, the three other ways to interact with me would be email, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, let me work them backwards. At uh, Twitter, I'm IC underscore Greg. That's what I do for everything. Walk the Earth. Uh, my personal life and inappropriate conversations all rolled up into one point of interaction. Facebook has two separate pages. One is a Facebook page for Walk the Earth as a podcast, and the other is inappropriate conversations, which is listed as a cause. Then finally, email. IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com is the best way to interact with me via email. Not 100% sure what I want to do with the schedule for the year 2017. I haven't set too many markers in place for planned shows on inappropriate conversations, but it seems likely that a Your Points and Questions show would be looming. It would be something I would try to get to. Uh, therefore, any correspondence, whether it be a via email or anything, frankly, directed to social media that is okay to use on the show, I might include in a program that looks at questions that I've been asked or points that I've been asked to consider. I think the next one will be your points and questions number six. 
been doing this for a while. By my count, this is the 192nd Inappropriate Conversations podcast, going back for some like something like six years now. And I also have 43 Walk the Earth questions. But the thing I want to focus on this is looking backward a little bit at something that I called at the time just 100 Ways. And one of the things I thought after I did it, so this work was probably completed somewhere between December 2001 and January 2002, and uh, not the kind of thing that I would do over and over again. I feel still pretty good about the list that I've got in front of me, knowing that it was never uh, truly comprehensive to begin with, but close enough to accurate. I then returned to this list when I decided to start a podcast and added a column that I could use to sort of make notes for places where one of the many inappropriate conversations topics I was considering was going to hit on one of the points that I documented in this particular list of 100 sort of things, 100 thoughts. And I can say that even though I've had to stretch a little bit to make the case, I've had to use some walk the earth references instead of inappropriate conversations references. There really isn't a line on here that doesn't have at least some tangential note. I've gotten to a lot of the things that I wanted to talk about. If I go all the way back to the year 2001 and answering the question, who am I? Now, that's a fair question to ask and the kind of question that I think probably we ought to consider seriously from time to time. And most of the time, you're going to get that question coming to you uh, more likely in a church group, a church small group, perhaps, or some sort of uh, counseling session perhaps a group therapy of some sort, the least likely place I would have expected to be dealing with this who are you question was at work. But back in 2001, right around the time that 9-11 happened, as a matter of fact, the person that I worked for decided that she really wanted her department to increase and improve its professional awareness. Now, a lot of the coursework, and the reason I was enthusiastic about it, was related to trying to raise the bar on simple things like grammar and punctuation, that everyone who worked in our department interacted with so many people across the large company that we worked for that we really felt like we needed to be on top of our game, that one of the things that we could do to make this new fledgling department run well would be to use proper grammar at all times, to spell properly, to manage punctuation accurately, and frankly, efficiently, for want of a better word. Uh, Anything we could do to get the more verbose people in the group, to speak in simple sentences and communicate ideas more effectively for that reason, or people who were inconsistent in the way they would document things, to be a little bit more thorough, and that while we might not be wanting to throw footnotes in the memos we were writing, or certainly not emails, but you you could manage your citations as you went through just by being more methodical in your communication. So if you think of it, in a work office environment, From a professional sort of development perspective, trying to increase and improve everyone's standards, getting to the point where maybe some people who were afraid of public speaking could gain a little bit of confidence that their ideas were strong enough and therefore could be shared. It had a public speaking component to it as well, but the section that I remember most from that material, it was sort of audiobook driven, and there might have been a workbook, I don't recall, was something that was basically kind of working on the self-confidence side of things. And it wasn't necessarily asking for, like, a positive affirmation. This isn't the Saturday Night Live sketch, you know, uh, you know, I'm great and people like me. It wasn't that. It was simply trying to make accurate statements of self-assessment. And the challenge was, can you pull out pen and paper or a spreadsheet and write down 100 things about you that are true? And I was a little bit surprised that it was as difficult as it was. I didn't find surprising the 100 ways exercise being a challenge for your average person or even for for most people. Or Certainly, I knew some people in my department would struggle with this, including some of the people who worked directly for me. But I also thought I was going to be okay, that I could probably handle this. And I did ultimately get to 100. I don't know if I'm going to make a reference to all 100 today, but it was harder to do than I thought that it was. Because so many of these simple statements, well, the exercise forced me to uncouple simple statements, where I might make one statement that was actually three or four things at once, uh, one big idea, and forced me both in the interest of trying to get to 100, which, again, proved harder than I thought, but also to be simple and concise and clear, and not necessarily uh, put um, unnecessary things together in combination with each other, just because those combinations might have made sense to me. And might not make sense to other people. Now, we didn't share this information with others. I think the exercise would have been impossible if you'd forced that. There are things that I'm going to share here that I've already mentioned elsewhere on other inappropriate conversations 
that I would probably never bring up in a business conversation. They're frankly just too personal. But they're also part of that getting to the truth of you know, what makes me tick, what makes me who I am. And again, not necessarily always positive and affirming, but also definitely not negative and destructive. So if any of the things on this list are somewhat embarrassing, it's just because they're true. It's not that I was trying to put together a list of the 100 things that are wrong that I need to improve, but it's also not the opposite of that. So it was somewhere in between. And as I go through this, I want people to think through, first off, could you do 100? Is it actually possible that I was too hard on myself and that this is really an easy exercise? Or was the majority of the people in the department I work with probably the reality for most folks, that this is just an extremely difficult thing to do? It's a level of self-awareness, frankly, that most of us try to avoid. And if you then put a stipulation that it can't be negative or added a stipulation that it needs to be shared, well, then I think the degree of difficulty simply goes through the roof. So I want to share a few of these, get a feel for it, and then break it up with our different drummer today. Because when I was looking at what did I want to do for a New Year's Eve, New Year's Day kind of a program, and I'm recording this on New Year's Day 2017, what would the right inspiration be? Who is the right different drummer? Because that is how I tend to handle these shows. Sometimes an inappropriate conversation will come from a different drummer where the topic is built around that. More often than not, the topic is first, the different drummer comes alongside it. And sometimes I fail to make the connection as cleanly as I'd like, and it's almost like there's two different things being discussed, such as the nature of a podcast segment. But today I thought, well, I'm not going to do a resolution. I'm not going to do this this list of things I intend to improve. I, I could go to the gym more. I could be more engaged with my extended family. I mean, you could do that, right? But part of this would be instead to say, if I'm going to accomplish some of the things that I've set out to accomplish, if some of the things that I think are true about myself that are good, that still need to be true, are going to continue to be true, how do I get that done? And central to my worldview is friendship. We'll get to that on the list. And friendship, both direct and real, but also uh, friendships that's virtual. I was thinking about this today with the passing of George Michael. I have not named George Michael as a different drummer. That's not the direction I'm going with this uh, with this reference. But if I go all the way back to Inappropriate Conversations 32, the very first year, October of 2010, I did an episode then called Recollection, which started with uh, an inspiration from George Michael. Again, didn't name him the different drummer in the show, but I, I broke out into song. And uh, that's one of the things I tend to do from time to time is break out into song, whether a lyrical reference or actual flat-out singing. And that might have been the first episode where I actually did break out into song. But I thought George Michael, uh, with Waiting for That Day, that the lyrics to that song captured perfectly what I wanted to talk about in terms of the challenge of having uh, real friends that you interact with and see real friends you've never seen in years and may never see again, and and that kind of recollection. Virtual friends, where you interact a lot online but may never meet, haven't met. And then virtual friends that you interact with a lot online that you have actually met, but still the primary form of interaction is online. It is social media. And that poses a handful of very different kinds of relationships that I tried to explore, perhaps a little clumsily, in Inappropriate Conversations 32, that goes back far enough to the very first year that the sound quality might be a bit of a, a bit of a question mark as well. It took me a while as a do-it-yourselfer here to get some stride, even in an audio blog format. And of course, at the time I was putting this list together as part of a business exercise, right around the end of 2001, beginning of the year 2002, I never dreamed that there would be a podcast. I had to impose that column to my spreadsheet a little bit later. Originally, it was just column A, 101 rows, with the first row being just a title bar that said 100, helping me sort of keep count of where I was and how far I had to go. And I honestly can't remember how long it took me to get this list filled out, but the, the header I put on it has makes a reference to both 2001 and 2002. It does give you a sense that it took some time. So the different drummer today will be John Pavlovitz. I'll get to him in a minute. And it's an example of someone that I have not met, who knows, may never meet, who has been an inspiration Another voice, at times doing nothing more than saying, I hear you, I feel the same way. Or another voice saying, Christianity has always been hard, maybe it's become more difficult now. I would think that's certainly true of the year 2016. Made difficult by people who also say they're following Christ, but doing it very, very differently. 
uh, we'll talk about John Pavlovitz in that context in the different drummer segment. So let me start off the list with what I consider to be a bang. But it's a previous reference. I believe I mentioned it in the past, in Inappropriate Conversations 18, about qualifications to be president. I also made a note to myself that I mentioned it in Inappropriate Conversations 57, uh, because I shared a poem there that I called Where 16 Equals Forever. So it's potentially controversial as it may sound to say that one of the things that is uniquely true about me is that I've had a faithful dedication to one woman for my entire life that my wife and I have only been with each other, in other words, to use a sort of uh, semi-biblical terminology, keep the uh, explicit language tag off this particular episode. Well, the the meaning of the title, Where 16 Equals Forever, gives you some insight. When you meet and start dating the woman that you're going to marry, when you're 16 and a half and she's 15 and a half, there probably isn't a ton of prior experience there. And having no prior experience, and having managed this relationship throughout from that starting point, uh, well, it seems obvious to me, but I bet it's surprising to most people. I guess for your average person, they would question whether that's possible. It is possible, and it was the first thing I put on paper once I realized I wasn't going to have to share this list with any of my peers and employees. Willing apologists for my faith against both apathetic agnostics and fundamentalists of all kinds. I would say over the years, this means that I've been a willing apologist for my faith against fundamentalist Christianity as much as anything else. Certainly that's true here lately. An advocate for intersexual friendship in practice as well as theory. Among the greatest joys of my life have been friendships that I've managed and maintained with people of the opposite gender, being somebody who's sexually attracted to the opposite gender, but then you go back to the first entry on this list, and that explains how, for me anyway, how this is possible. So I've consistently maintained that it is possible, but I've also been very serious and pragmatic about how it is possible. And there are thoughts and essays on this topic that I have not yet shared. There's a few journals that I've kind of kept in the drawer, uh, literally and figuratively, that would deal with some of my thoughts related to that. And I've just sort of sat on it for, well, again, almost six full years now. Expert on surrealism in film, and Luis Manuel in particular. There was a time in my life when I would have taken the term expert here pretty seriously. But I, I recall a conversation online on the Do Ask, Do Tell podcast many years ago, where there was a question about to what degree the validity of my uh, studies in college still count. I mean, if I haven't been active in a particular industry, therefore I've got a college degree in something, but I haven't really worked in that field. At what point do you lose whatever the benefit was of the studies you've done? I mean, your your knowledge base is somewhat frozen in time as anything else other than maybe a hobby in all those intervening years. So I have seen more films by Luis Manuel now than when I was in college and first encountered his work and kind of dove in head first and devoured material, a process that actually continued well after graduation. But it's been a while. Expert, in other words, probably an overstatement. Music lover who is comfortable within a large range of musical styles. Well, anybody who's listened to any of the music-oriented uh, Inappropriate Conversations podcast probably has a pretty good sense that this is, a, if, if not an understatement, at least an accurate statement. Drum section leader in high school for two years, and I still know the music. Inappropriate Conversations number 51 tells a little bit about this, and I have another reference to it in this list, I'm pretty sure. But it, from time to time, stuck in traffic with fingers on the steering wheel or the dashboard, my mind just naturally drifts off to these cadences. Um, we had a very specific set of drum cadences that I learned to play over the course of four years, arranged for tritoms instead of just a tenor drum, and learned the snare part so that I could be, well, again, a section leader, a co-section leader, truth be known. But yeah, that drumming experience, even though I never played drums in any sort of even um, formal timpani for the orchestra, marching band in high school, but I didn't play after high school. Never was like the drummer for a rock band or anything like that, but still that experience kind of stuck with me. Played on a city champion flag football team in the sixth grade that went undefeated. We went undefeated because we had to go undefeated, and that, maybe that's a story I'll share one day, because we were, uh, we'd missed some sort of filing deadline, were ineligible for the playoffs unless we went undefeated in the regular season, which we did, and then that got us into the playoffs, and those three football games are still pretty well emblazoned into my memory, despite the fact that I never played football after that, never played tackle football at all. My last experience, my last game, was winning a city championship. 
This one surprised me when I remembered it. I resurrected the college newspaper's entertainment section during my semester as the editor of the, uh, the entertainment editor and movie reviewer. I worked in a college newspaper in a large, you know, one of these uh, big conference public universities that had allowed any concept of having a section for entertainment to just completely wane. They weren't showing the movie showtimes. They'd yielded all that to the daily newspaper in the city and let the city newspaper kind of take that over. And one of my goals was to say, hey, whether we actually achieve the goal of getting any advertising out of this at all, we're a college newspaper. We ought to have a place where people can go to find out what's what's coming in concert, not just in our small city, but in the big cities nearby. But clearly, what is the local performing arts uh, is associated with the university doing? Are there deadlines for play tryouts and stuff of that nature? That had all just become, you know, two-inch filler on page two and three over the years. And it was my direct interaction with the editor-in-chief I worked with at the time to say, this is what I want to do. This is the thing we've got to do if we're going to be credible at all, frankly, as a college newspaper. I won first prize in the father-son cake bake as a Cub Scout, as a kid, and then made a similar cake with my son. The winning design, um, and of course I, my son and I, we got some sort of prize, but it wasn't the overall winner, I don't, as I, at least I don't recall that. But my father and I, we won the overall winner, and I still had the trophy when we moved into the house we live in now. I think it didn't survive the move, it, it ended up being broken, but uh, it was a castle in terms of how we wanted to do it, so... Uh, multiple cakes were baked so that you could create towers and um, and a main castle with a drawbridge. Think uh, graham cracker doors with licorice, you know, draw draw ropes. Um, the one that my son and I did, we actually took it one step further and used frosting to put a moat around it with gummy sharks swimming in the water. That kind of idea. Less in terms of the, the probably the world's greatest skill in terms of actually preparing food. Neither my father nor I were that gifted at baking, I wouldn't reckon. So we made up for it with design and uh, perhaps creativity, for want of a better word. And with my son, it was a funny story. We This cake ends up being very large. So we bake it the night before and bring it in for the day of the contest. So that there's an auction and people bid and whoever wants it, you know, uh, makes a donation and gets to take the cake home. Well, for whatever reason, I think it was probably severe weather or something along those lines. The event was canceled, pushed off at least a week, maybe two weeks. And the phone call I got with the scout leader was, well, it's not a big deal. Just put it in the freezer or something, thaw it out the night before. It'll be fine. And I looked at the cake that we just made, which was too big for any freezer that I've ever owned, uh, to be honest. it was You'd need one of those big sort of uh, put-it-in-the-basement kind of huge the kind of – the kind of freezer you could cut up a body and hide it in, to be honest with you, is how big it would have needed to be. So we ended up, I ended up taking that cake to work and just bringing it in for employees to sample and try and maybe give me off, offer some feedback and advice because we had to turn around and do it all over again, uh, simply because we didn't have a good way of making that cake good for another week to 10 days. I met annually with my brother to play paper football. We had a paper football tournament. We call it the Thanksgiving Paper Football Classic. Later, I had to amend it to the annual Paper Football Classic because I work in retail and Thanksgiving is not always an easy time, meaning it put the burden on my brother for at least a decade to be the one who found a way to make a travel arrangement happen. It was a three-decade family tradition with something like 30 years of extensive records, best-of-seven series, and I talk about all that in Inappropriate Conversations 38, which I'd intended to come out before Thanksgiving of that first year of the show, probably came out in December of that year. The nature of trying to do this on a schedule and, and not quite getting it done. Here's one that I'm not sure how to take as a positive or a negative, and when I offer my opinion about it, I think you'll get a sense. I co-wrote obituaries for both my father and sister. My father died more than 20 years ago. My sister died, you know, something like 15 years ago, and I ended up writing obituaries for both of them. And and the reasoning was, well, you've got the journalism degree, you've got experience in writing. And I think my attitude is my lesson learned from this true fact about myself is that I'm done with the obituary writing business. It seems on some level arguably inappropriate to ask somebody to write an obituary for a family member. It seems like the last thing you do. And I know that there are women who are avid bakers who bake their own wedding cake, but that seems like that's a little bit more of a positive thing you're doing, contributing to an event, 
this feels like a lot to ask somebody in mourning to turn around and deliver. So maybe it's a good example of something that's on this list that I can't make the argument as positive. Certainly not something that I would repeat again if given the chance to to repeat my steps. I believe that kids having fun or having fun with kids includes going to parks, museums, libraries, things of that nature. And then I get to a few things that are about the church. I co-taught young adult Sunday school class for the after high school years, post high school. And I talk about that a lot in Walk the Earth 30. Uh, It's a good place to reference that. I also actively participated in church committees, including working with outreach and worship, stewardship, finance, staff parish relations, because in the denomination that I was going to at the time, this is pre-Walk the Earth, a position, a laity position called lay leader, was more than just specific things that you were contributing to during a worship service on any given Sunday. It was about mandatory attendance in at least half the committees I just named. And in the particular church that I was in, it turned into a commitment of, well, on the light side, maybe two, three hours a month of committees. On the high side, that was two or three hours a week when things weren't going well. It became one heck of a commitment to be asking, and it had almost nothing whatsoever to do with ministry. It was the first time I began to notice the line between the business of the church and actually being the church. And this may be as good a place as any to introduce our different drummer, John Pavlovitz. One of the reasons I don't want to spend too much time on the end of 2016 and the beginning of 2017 is that I don't have much positive to say about it. I view 2016 outside of my direct personal relationships with my wife and with my kids to be a bit of a disaster. It just didn't go well. Well, Pavlovitz is a pastor and a blogger, and I want to refer first to his work as a blogger, johnpavlovitz.com. As I'm recording this today, the most recent effort by him was related to this specific topic, talking to 2016, offering a corrective interview to a year that made a lot of mistakes, says this, Among other things, you took David Bowie, you took Prince and Muhammad Ali and Alan Rickman and George Michael and Carrie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds, and that's just the short list. Seriously, I know you're contractually obligated to some subtraction, but how much beauty and creativity and passion and purpose are you going to steal from us? Pavlovitz then makes a comparison to the things that the year gave us in return, but the notable contributions were probably uh, more things we other things we've lost. We've lost this year. Journalism, facts, civil discourse, an unpolluted electoral process, any illusions that racism and homophobia and misogyny were waning, hopes of greater equality for marginalized communities, dreams of our first woman president, and simple pride in being an American. This is largely your legacy, 2016. Bigotry, fear, violence, hopelessness, embarrassment, grief, and stealing the guy who wrote Purple Rain. Nice freaking work. So, Pavlovitz, giving himself permission to speak freely on his blog, which again, uh, from a website perspective, is john is johnpavlovitz.com. Uh, the underscore, uh, the subtitle is Stuff That Needs To Be Said. I've talked before that when I'm dealing with a different drummer for inappropriate conversations, who's an author... It's often ironically hard to find Wikipedia information. In other words, it's hard to find written biographical information about writers compared to perhaps other people, uh, musicians, politicians, theologians of the sort. But here's what Pavlovitz says about himself on the about page of his website. I'm an 18-year ministry veteran trying to figure out how to love people well and to live out the red letters of Jesus. I enjoy songwriting, exercising, cooking, hiking, and eating emotionally. This is a place where I say stuff that needs to be said. I welcome you to say what you believe needs to be said in response, knowing that ultimately the truth is somewhere in the middle. I proudly serve at North Raleigh Community Church. I pastor people in the Raleigh area and throughout the world. Thanks for stopping by and for reading the musings of a flawed, passionate work in progress. John. Well, that, of course, led me, from a rabbit trail perspective, in the direction of this North Raleigh Community Church. 
their website, which is exactly what you'd expect it to be, NorthRaleighCommunityChurch.org, says this, We tried to find answers, but found doctrine. We now seek wisdom and are finding life. We tried to live good lives, but found frenzy. We now listen for the inner voice and are finding peace. We tried to be devout, but found empty religion. We now dance with the divine and are finding contentment. Their Facebook page, which is you know, North Raleigh Community Church Downtown, is kind of the, the name of the Facebook page, basically starts off with a welcome, describing themselves as an emerging spiritual community rooted in two convictions. First, we believe God's Spirit indwells each of us. And second, it is our desire to help each other awaken to that compelling presence within. We are traveling the spiritual journey together, practicing the ancient Christian pathways, and considering the wisdom and truth available to us in our contemporary society. We don't focus very much on dogma or creed. We are unquestionably Christian, but we don't make a requirement that you believe a certain way to belong here. Our heart is non-denominational, emerging, accepting, and embracing of all. I've expressed words in the past weeks or months here on Inappropriate Conversations, both that and Walk the Earth, kind of offering some doubt that if I had to go from the church community that I'm in now to seeking another one that could make this claim on their Facebook page, I feel like in 2016, my likelihood to succeed is even lower than it seemed it would be in 2013 and 2014 when we made a transition from a very traditional mainline United Methodist church congregation to the church we go to today. Because finding a church that is genuinely welcoming and affirming and embracing to all is extremely difficult to do. And again, I feel like it seems harder to do that right now. I wanted to share a few things that uh, John Pavlovitz had to write. I did just share uh, his, his post called, Goodbye 2016, You Were a Real Jerk. And I also want to make reference to one that spoke aggressively to Trump supporters in the week and maybe even just a few days after the election, kind of calling out the sore winner mentality that had manifested itself in racism and misogyny and violence, basically saying, you, white Christian, you, white Christian Trump supporter, are in a position of privilege and power to fix this. And what does it mean if you choose not to? One of the heart and souls of the things that kind of led me on a bit of a hiatus from podcast recording between Inappropriate Conversations 190, Dear Family Member, and 191, the one just before this in the middle of December. What took so long was my struggle with people who had said that they were holding their nose and voting for Trump anyway, but were also dead silent about the outbreak and aftermath of racist and homophobic hatred that emerged after winning. I was bracing myself when I recorded Dear Family Member a few days before the election for what might happen from that, you know, percentage, 10, 20%, 30%, whatever it was of the Trump camp that was very likely to lash out violently, destructively, even potentially murderously at people if the election results didn't go their way. I was not at all prepared for some of that same nastiness, perhaps to a less homicidal degree, but some of that same nastiness to be so pungently in our face after the Trump supporters won. Again, one of the things I find most upsetting in, in pro sports and even college sports is bad sportsmanship. And I hold teams that are poor sports after winning to a much higher degree of accountability. To me, that is the place where it's easiest to be magnanimous and to tell your opponent, good game, appreciate the effort, and sort of shake hands and move on. And we haven't seen much of that. We've seen more swastikas painted on churches than that. And I, I drew a line in the sand and I called out to my family members, particularly and some of my friends, to say, I'm waiting for you who supported this man to denounce the things that his other supporters are doing. I'm looking at you who were never even momentarily considered, even by Clinton, the moment she gave her speech to be part of a basket of deplorables, she divided his group of people into two people, the, the kind of people who would burn down a church, the kind of people who would scrawl swastikas on a church, the kind of people who would you know, verbally berate a store clerk because she wasn't born in this country. There's that group, and then there's this other group. And I, Most of the people that I grew up with, I put in this other group, the group that was not deplorable. But 
to a person, they all seemed willing to, to dump themselves into the basket. They were so aggressively interested in being anti-Clinton that they were willing to call themselves racists who aren't really racist and homophobes who aren't homophobic, that, that they wanted to whitewash the alt-right, as they call themselves, because they wanted to win an election, essentially. And, and Pavlovitz did a better job than I'm doing here and a better job than I did at the time of also calling that out. But ironically, I quoted Pavlovitz when I shared that post to my own personal Facebook page and was verbally berated by people that I went to church with, even going back as far as elementary school, for how wrong I was and how far away from Christ I'd become and how I've lost the script and I'm clearly confused and all sorts of things. I finally said, you're berating me as having lost touch with real Christianity because you think I said what I quoted? When I shared this article, it was a link to johnpavlovitz.com. And when I decided to put some text in it, I put quotation marks around the beginning and the ending of it and cited him. This is a pastor you're saying that you think isn't good enough to be Christian anymore because, well, it's more important to exclude certain groups. It's more important to keep Christianity, quote unquote, pure than it is to actually do the dirty, dirty work of loving other people. So I wanted to end this Different Drummer segment with one direct quote, uh, not in its entirety, but a fairly good quote, a lengthy quote from Pavlovitz on uh, a post he put up on September 18th, 2015, so going back more than a year now, called, I Want to Do Love Right. And I want to kind of hit the middle part of this and just sort of jump right in. These, these are the words of Pavlovitz. So once again, if someone decides that I don't understand the Bible and I'm not really a Christian anymore because I'm quoting these words, that's ironic. I'm quoting somebody who actually is a pastor. Starting here. In a fairly well-known portion of his letter to the Christian community in Corinth, Paul, their pastor, writes, If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. In plain words, I hear Paul saying, it doesn't matter how much I get right in this life. If I haven't really loved well, I've gotten the rightest thing wrong, and I've compromised my testimony, squandered my time, and wasted the trip. I simply refuse to waste my trip. And so my agenda is now fairly simple. I want my presence on the planet to result in less pain, less inequality less poverty, less suffering, less damage for those sharing it with me. I want the sum total of my efforts to yield more compassion, more decency, more laughter, more justice, and more goodness than before I showed up. That's it. In other words, I just want to do love right. A bit further down, Pavlovitz says, Sadly, I see so many people of faith expending all their time and energy trying to be right in all the wrong things. They labor and strain for a foolproof theology, a proper religion, a political position, a respectable family image, a certain standing in the community. They want to win arguments and claim high ground and throw shade and pass judgment because those things make them feel quite morally right. And that's an easy high to chase. And yet to many people outside of the faith, we Christians have more and more become clanging symbols making loud and loveless noise in their ears, all the while talking just like angels. I have no interest in loudly living such a disconnect. As best I can, I am divorcing myself from words as my primary language. I want my very life itself to speak with the greatest clarity. And so my most fervent prayer these days is simply this. Dear God, I really don't care about anything else today. Just help me do love right. John Pavlovitz, our different drummer, and somebody that I'm proud to say, with me, in fact, in a case of mistaken identity, instead of me, has been denounced by the very people who cannot summon the courage at the end of 2016 and the beginning of 2017 to stand up and say boldly and with clarity that defacing a Christian church with swastikas is wrong. That telling a person who is legally working in our country and doing the best she can to learn the language and to serve customers well in the extremely challenging field of customer service during Christmas time, berating that person is wrong. That we are not told 
to be the rule manager for the entire world, keeping Christianity pure so we could hand to God the one talent he gave us because we never actually went out and tried to make more disciples. We're instead told to dig that thing out of the dirt and to go, not to hang a shingle, but to go and interact with people and interact with people in their moment of greatest need. Pavlovitz gets this. Almost nobody I can name that I went to church with for 20 years can say the same. Okay, I called the show 100 Ways, and I didn't even get two dozen in before I needed to stop for time, among other things, and introduce the different drummer. So I'm going to be a little bit more lightning round quick here, just to name a few more, and clearly I know I'm not going to get all the way in. But the one thing that it reveals to me is I can't even talk about 100 things. Uh, even having written them down and documented them and thought them through and incorporated them in past inappropriate conversations shows, it's a daunting, daunting task. So I will just share bits and pieces to give you a sense of what the exercise was about. And if there is an inspiration for someone to follow suit, feel free. I think it's a challenge worth taking. Picking up where I left off. Have memorized a wide variety of music lyrics and movie dialogue, which I often use in conversation and in analogies. I bought several select books, music, and movies that I loved as a kid so that my children could see what I saw. I believe that I have heard a direct heavenly answer to prayer. Heard that on February 7th, 1987, and I talk about it in Inappropriate Conversations 80. I sang He Shall Feed His Flock from Handel's Messiah for both school and church as an elementary school student, as an elementary school soloist. Obviously back before my voice, my voice changed. In high school, I was voted most likely to be found on a mountaintop in Guadalajara writing the world's most profound three-word sentence. True story. Talked about it in Inappropriate Conversations 79. Have never used an illegal drug and have tried to stand as an example for those who've, you know, struggled to resist peer pressure that it's possible to do. On the legal side, I also do not smoke, dip, chew, or otherwise use tobacco products. But I do drink. As a bartender, my, uh, my game probably is to make fun versions of custom drinks like Blue Hawaiian, Mai Tai, and frozen cappuccino. I often tell kids, my kids, stories from before they were born, or even when they were very young, to establish family histories. I think that this sort of oral tradition goes back, well, it's part of our history. It's part of our collective human history. I also encourage kids to interact with elderly people, taking pride in their occasional adoption of surrogate grandparents. See, we live several states away from my parents' and uh, other relatives, uh, somewhat isolated because of work relocating us. But our kids have been very good, uh, very capable of interacting with people across many generations, and have charmed, I guess would be the word I'd use for it, enough people that were co-workers of my wife, for example, that on Take Your Grandparent to School Day, my kids often had an answer, even though it wasn't a blood relative. I preserve the value of expensive mechanical and electronic devices, keeping a 10-year-old TV and a 12-year-old car and a 17-year-old stereo system working to my satisfaction. That stereo system that was 17 years old in 2002 is still in my basement. It's been a while since I've tried to turn it on. I've got doubts about how well I'm still living up to this, but 17 years was a very, very good run. I'm a longtime supporter of equal rights for women, including providing full support to female supervisors and equal pay and opportunities to female employees. I think this is one of those things where only a few decades from now, it's going to look very strange that this was even an argument that we were having. But not only are we having this argument, but we just got through a political election cycle where a close advisor to the president-elect, a relative of him as a matter of fact, openly suggested in interviews that we should take the right to vote away from women because many women were disproportionately going to vote for Clinton instead of Trump. So we will look back at this with a sense of amazement and uh, we'll look back to 2016 as part of the problem. I take the time to learn the back streets around places that I live so I can find addresses and maneuver through town as efficiently as possible. I've often said that Understanding where the schools are is as good a landmark as you can get because it does clean up some things in terms of saying, well, 
Are you talking about the, this particular McDonald's or Wendy's that is close to this school versus that school? In the city where I grew up, I, of course, lived there for many years and, and did my initial driver training in that city. But long before I ever got behind the wheel of a car, even as a driver's ed student, I knew where all the elementary schools were. Part of that was playing elementary school sports, flag football, for example. But part of it was just understanding how to navigate through town. I accept the notion of possible world theory. The choices we consider create potential worlds with an infinite number of hypothetical causes and effects all their own. And along with possible world theory, I insist that God is the creator of all universes, actual and possible, and prayer is the only way to influence the possible worlds orbiting around the current actual world. Probably best to just refer this one to Inappropriate Conversations 27, let that episode speak for itself, and this is clearly an example of me failing to stick to one idea only on the journey toward 100 uh, 100 ways. I hold the hypothesis that faith is one of the four forms of knowledge, similar to intuition and included with reason and observation. I don't believe the idea that faith is merely belief, or that holding the right beliefs is faith. And I've got strong biblical foundation for this. The book of James alone speaks volumes about that difference between simply holding an idea in your head and having faith. Faith is often represented in action instead of just in thought. And to me, there's a collision between the John Pavlovitz theories out there, that faith is what we do, and this notion of what seems to be the majority of Christianity these days, that simply holds that if you think the right thoughts and hold the right beliefs, then nothing else matters. I believe that time is relative in space, meaning that what we call time does not exist in a cosmic sense. I insist, as Jesus did, that prayer must be a genuine effort to communicate with God rather than some public display of piety. This, of course, means that most of the things that we hear today described as school prayer falls outside of Jesus' definition and into the area where Jesus said you must not do that in Matthew chapter 6. I teach others that if you make it impossible for people to make you happy, then people will lose interest in whether you are happy or not. We've seen a lot of this in the political sphere. This division, this stonewalling, this my way or the highway attitude is people not paying attention to this important principle of, well, first off, compromise is an inherent good, but how do you do it? There's a way of finding out what people actually need, ensuring that they get what they need, even if in the process you have to ask them to give up a lot of what they merely want or desire. But you do have to do that work. It has to be possible for the person to be at least made whole in any sort of negotiation. And I think we're failing that miserably today, particularly on the political side of things. I believe that secular music can serve a spiritual purpose for people who otherwise wouldn't listen to church songs. In other words, their guiding principles, whether those be philosophical or religious or merely spiritual, that come through creation of art, whether that art is absolutely in no way church music whatsoever, the truth still comes through. For me, this was Inappropriate Conversations 53, sharing numerous examples of things where clearly secular music was telling what I was hearing as a genuinely spiritual story. I once dodged the fists of a high school teacher who tried to punch me for playing drums too loudly during a pep rally. Inappropriate Conversations 51. I drove with my brother in a rental truck from Tulsa, Oklahoma to Los Angeles, California to move him from college partly along, along the Route 66. So this was a, more of an Interstate 44 route for most of it, but most people who understand that part of the American Southwest know that 44 is simply the uh, the interstate highway version of Route 66. So parts of our journey were 66, parts of our journey were 44, and for him, it was a journey from St. Louis to Los Angeles. And it was still one of, one of my favorite experiences, going all the way back to, say, maybe 1986, if I'm remembering right. I survived an armed robbery as the primary victim with a gun pointed a few feet from my head without serious incident. Inappropriate Conversations 113. I jokingly called it Raised on Robbery because of what I learned from that experience. And I also, talking about learning from, from uh, experience and the way education is managed today versus in the past, I was given comprehensive sex education at church before the age of 12. I don't even think I was 11 yet. Including 
frank discussions about contraception, sexually transmitted diseases, and sexual orientation. This was in church, provided through the church. It wasn't just the buildings being used by some outside social group. This was the congregation that I was part of making sure that the children who were about to be going into middle school of youth group were properly educated and got every single one of their questions answered. This led not to some rampant debauchery, not to some, you know, a criminal strain of sexual misbehavior because of that knowledge being power and power is dangerous. The current mindset of, say, the, the Liberty University and Franklin Graham version of, of American Christianity. No, no, no. This led to me being the kind of person who's been married to one woman for my entire life, faithful to that woman for my entire life, and met her at such a young age that there wasn't any wild oats before our relationship started for the two of us. That somehow both of us being educated in a somewhat similar way through different United Methodist congregations did not yield the problems that everyone sort of says will happen if we tried that today. In fact, I think probably, and when I look on my Facebook feed anyway, and there's a coincidence there, right? I'm looking at people who are part of a very politically conservative part of the country. This is Bible Belt material. And of course, we all had the same exact church experience, but I'm finding comparatively fewer divorces and broken homes and open marriages and things of that nature. I'm finding a whole lot of people who are given the same kind of powerful and in the mind of some religious right conservatives, dangerous information at too young an age. And we turned out fine. We turned out better than our peer group by far. Now, that's anecdotal evidence. You'd actually have to do something that the religious right is also opposed to, like study this formally, do some actual statistical analysis and see if it's true. But I will tell you that from my own personal experience, those of us who got high quality, extremely detailed, comprehensive sex education have done much better in our the maturity of our adult relationships, finding suitable partners, staying married to one another, not engaging in um, kind of reckless and insensitive sexual behavior. We're, we're not as a group generally spreading sexually transmitted diseases and leaving illegitimate children in our wake. It turned out very differently, which raises the question of why someone who grew up in that environment, who was in the exact same course with me, would have such a politically different perspective today. In the Inappropriate Conversation show earlier this year that I named Consent, mainly because I wanted to correct some things uh, and kind of talk about how dangerous it is that so many Christians don't seem to understand, comprehend, or embrace the important concept of consent, especially in sexual behavior. Inappropriate Conversations 186 came out uh, early July of 2016. I was calling that out, that there was a pastor in Ohio who was frankly freaking out over the fact that a 15-year-old was being given this kind of quality sex education in high school. I was 11 years old getting this kind of quality sex education within the church all those years ago. So uh, this notion that we, sh we should be waiting until kids are past puberty to tell them what's going on in puberty is absolutely insane. I talked about it a little bit initially in Inappropriate Conversations 14, way back in the first year, kind of describing that sex education the way we used to do it and wondering why the same church, the same denomination, feels so differently today with no evidence to back up a shift in course. Um, Puritanism, Victorianism, probably having more to do it than facts. But I also hit it again here recently in Inappropriate Conversations 186. I don't feel like I've hit half of these right now. But these are all that kind of, that that logic of saying, here's a factual statement. It tells you a little bit about who I am. More importantly, it tells me a little bit about who I am to help guide me along the path of saying, how do I want to address certain things professionally? Because again, this was a work exercise. Professionally, who you are, what your values are, what your experiences are, it informs all of these interactions. And if you pretend it doesn't, if you ignore it, if you're not sensitive to it, it doesn't mean it's not true. It just makes it subliminal <laughs> in some ways and creates a certain disconnect that can reveal itself in unexpected and perhaps even unprofessional ways. The last one I want to share, I think, kind of cuts to the core of this exercise. And I'll use it to finish this particular Inappropriate Conversations show. I deny the notion that honesty is a relative character trait by insisting 
that honesty is the best policy, but not because of the problems associated with lying, though true, but because of the incredible power of truth. I referred in the last Walk the Earth episode to the notion that maybe up to 80% of American evangelical Christianity has just got to stop identifying themselves as Christian in the sense that they are part of the way, the truth, and the life, because they have clearly abandoned truth. Maybe they're just part of the way in the life now, and that's good enough for them. Are they honest enough with themselves to acknowledge that the way I answered the question in Walk the Earth 43 is unfortunately true? Well, we've become disconnected from the truth, even within the church, even even within the right-wing conservative, or maybe especially within the right-wing conservative branch of American Christianity. We're no longer interested in truth. A lie that gets what I want done done is good enough. We've lost sight of the fact that Jesus said Satan was the father of all lies, and that we're playing a dangerous game when we disconnect ourselves from truth, and of course, the notion that honesty is the best policy, you typically see that going back to this notion that telling the truth means that you never have to remember anything because truth uh, doesn't have to have a bodyguard of lies the same way that a lie does. Uh, that you know, once you've told one lie, you've got to wrap that up into another lie, and it has to have a story that's consistent and makes sense, even though none of it's true. That that notion of honesty is the best policy because of the pitfalls of lying, that's just one idea. And I'm not calling it invalid. I'm just setting it aside for now. To me, honesty is the best policy because of the incredibly powerful feeling of clarity that it gives you. When I sit down with another person and in a face-to-face conversation, unlike a podcast, say, here is who I am. Here's to the best of my knowledge why I'm this way. And here's what it means to me. Now, tell me your story. What are your truths? You don't have to have a hundred of them. You may just have to have one or two that are central to who you are. That conversation is incredibly powerful. Not just because we don't have to pretend that we told a truth that wasn't a truth and cover up a lie with a bodyguard of lies. Not that. But because that gets closer to who we really are. And I feel like in some ways, this year in particular, we've lost some really important parts of that authenticity, and that I'm fearful for 2017. Glad 2016 is gone, don't get me wrong, but I'm fearful that 2017 is going to force us to pay a price, and that most of us are not equipped to cover the costs. Greetings from the cockpit. This is Captain Scott, and we'd like to thank you for flying the Seder Sphere. This is co-pilot Cindy. We ask you at this time to unfasten your safety belt and release your chairs from their uptight position. We're high-flying with stopovers expected in theater, gaming, movies, television, and other mature destinations. We'd like to thank you for flying the frisky skies, and we hope to see you on our next flight to the Seder Sphere. I simultaneously feel like I've shared more than I should, maybe even in some ways shared more than I have before, but that seems unlikely. Almost everything on that page that I was just looking at has been covered in one way or another, either directly or indirectly, in a previous inappropriate conversation show. All the same, there's something about putting that out there that I don't know, feels a little bit vulnerable. IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com is a good way of getting in touch with me. I do consider at some point in the early part of the year, it's about time for another points and questions show. So any feedback I get will be incorporated into the process of putting that together. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Thank you.
Kevin McLeod. This show is a proud member of the Pride 48 Podcasting Network. Check out other great podcasts at pride48.com slash shows.